Welcome back to Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom once again. And I think you guys probably know what we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about what went wrong on Saturday as Ohio State suffered a 35-28 to loss to Oregon. Game against Tulsa coming up this week, but we're really not going to talk about that a whole lot because... I'm not sure there's really a whole lot for us to say about a matchup with Tulsa. I know there's some people out there who are concerned uh, that Ohio State is now so vulnerable that they could lose to Tulsa. I really don't think that's going to happen. Tulsa is an 0-2 team that has lost to an FCS opponent. So I think Ohio State should be able to win comfortably this week. But certainly, when we look at how the defense has performed through the first two games of this season. There's definitely very real reason for concern there in terms of if this is a team that has a chance to compete for a Big Ten title and compete for a berth from a college ball playoff. They already have one loss now, and it's very clear that there are some major issues with this Ohio State defense. Yeah, we knew there was going to be defensive issues. We, we thought that there might be some defensive issues coming into this season for sure, based on how the season ended last year. Uh, but first of all, I just want to say this. You know, people thought that Ohio State might lose to Oregon. A handful of Ohio State you know, beat reporters actually predicted, you know, Oregon to, to win, thought this might be the game, either Oregon or, or Indiana possibly, that could beat Ohio State in the regular season this year. And it happened. It happened by one touchdown. And, I, and so from, from that perspective, it shouldn't be all that shocking because these things do happen. Ohio State has lost these games early in the regular season before. Think about Oklahoma, USC back in the day. There are, there are a number of instances in this of this happening. However, I don't think people were expecting to see some of the, the glaring defensive deficiencies that they saw in particular on Saturday. When you go back and watch the film, you know, with people joking on Twitter about how funny the film is to watch with some of the, you know, awareness or lack thereof of the Ohio State linebackers and things of that nature. I think that's what has people really perturbed by this game in particular is just some of the really alarming things they saw on defense for Ohio State. But all that being said, if, if the glass is half full, Ohio State still only lost by one touchdown to Oregon, who's now the number four team in the country. But obviously we've got a lot to unpack uh, with, with the defense moving forward here. Yeah, I think that's a good point you make, first of all, about the fact that it shouldn't come as a complete shock that Ohio State lost to Oregon. And I think it's important for us, certainly, I think it can be tougher for, for fans, but I think it's certainly important for us to keep in perspective that I see some of the responses from Ohio State fans over the last few days calling the team awful and, and all this. And, you know, you read some of these responses and you, you would think, you know, you'd think this was like the Purdue game in 2018 when Ohio State got, got blown out by an unranked team. Ohio State lost by seven points and had a chance to win the game in the fourth quarter against a team that's now ranked as the number four team in the country. So I think we have to be careful not to just overreact to one game. Because, I mean, I was saying it last week. You know, I know a lot of people on our staff at 11 Warriors were going into that game thinking, Ohio State's going to cover easily. Ohio State's going to win this game big. And, And I was trying to say, like, I don't know, guys. Like, I think, you know, you guys are overly confident in the defense. I think Oregon is a better team than you're giving them credit for. That said, I still picked Ohio State to win. I picked Ohio State to win by two scores. So I'm not saying that I was right. 
But I am saying that I, I did think that was going to be a competitive game. I, I also did predict that Ohio State was going to lose a game this year. And so I, I think, you know, this idea that one loss to a team that could be really good is, you know, means the team is a complete tire fire. I, I think that's an overreaction. And so I think, you know, and we could, we could talk about this a little bit later in the show as well, just about kind of what's next for this team. But I don't think that people should look at Ohio State losing to Oregon and act like it's the worst loss in Ohio State history. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the reality of a situation here. I do think, though, that there certainly are real concerns about the Ohio State defense. And when you compound the fact that it's not just this one game, and both games this year have been bad. If you look at the numbers, they're really bad. Now, granted, Ohio State's played two Power 5 teams. Most other teams in the football bowl subdivision haven't. Nonetheless, Ohio State is ranked outside the top 100 in both total and scoring defense. They're ranked 123rd in run defense, which is really bad. And when you take the fact that they're struggling so much on defense this year after they had so many problems on defense last year, they're not the same problems, but they're still problems. It absolutely leads to questions, starting with a question that I know so many of you out, ha- out there have is, can Kerry Combs actually be successful as Ohio State's defensive coordinator at Ohio State? And, you know, we're recording this just a few hours after Ryan Day's press conference on Tuesday. And Ryan Day certainly did not give Kerry Combs a vote of confidence on Tuesday. When a- after 30 minutes uh, of basically giving non-answers about whether Kerry Combs would continue to be the defensive play caller. Ryan Day did say that, yes, Kerry Combs is still Ohio State's defensive coordinator. But it's also very clear that he is not happy with how things are going on the defensive side of the ball and that he feels that changes need to be made. Yeah, Ryan Day said on Tuesday that, you know, Ryan Day's huge thing, his huge involvement with the team is with the offense, obviously. And with the defense, although they are running his scheme that he, he wants them to be running with a single high style, obviously we've talked about with him, you know, kind of con- concocting with Jeff Halfley and how that defense uh, went in 2019, it, it was a good thing. But Ryan Day said uh, on Tuesday, it upsets him when he has to like divert his attention from the offense and suddenly now he has to get involved with the, with the actual defense, which is not his forte, obviously. And now he's got to start yelling at Kerry Combs and he's got to start making things uncomfortable in the room, as he was saying on Tuesday. And that's something that, that takes away from the. Then suddenly he can't focus on the offense, and uh, and suddenly that just gets everybody kind of out of whack. You know, Ryan Day's talked a lot about how you know facing adversity is a time where a lot of people are going to be pointing fingers. Obviously, that's taking place on Twitter and from the Ohio State fan base. You kind of wonder how that's breaking down in the actual locker room and, and behind closed doors of the Ohio State program. Kerry Combs is obviously taking the brunt of the blame here. I mean, we haven't even really heard the name Al Washington mentioned at all in terms of the criticism of, or Larry Johnson for that matter, in terms of the criticism um, of the defense uh, after that Oregon game. But yeah, Dan, I mean, uh, what, what were some of the, your other big takeaways from Tuesday's press conference, which obviously for us recording this right now was just a few hours ago, uh, um, which also was only Ryan Day, no assistants, no players, um, which is clearly a big difference. For me, having covered uh, the last couple regular seasons, that's never been the case because Ohio State's never lost a regular season game while I've been covering the team the last uh, couple of years. 
So this is all kind of new, having this a loss, you know, this early in the season. I'm just wondering what else stood out to you from the press conference. Yeah, I think the major takeaway is just basically what we've already said, that Ryan Day is clearly not happy with Ohio State's defense. And I think what's striking, I think a thing we haven't seen from Ryan Day before is I think in, in his first three years, we've always seen Ryan Day express confidence in the people in the program, whether it's his coaches, whether it's his players. We've always seen him express confidence that the people they have in that program are capable of overcoming whatever has gone wrong. You know, last year was a little different with COVID. You know, Ryan Day brought up repeatedly last year that, you know, that COVID had created challenges for them. And, you know, those are things they had to work through. 2020 was a weird year for everybody. And so it's still an excuse, but I think it was a valid excuse uh, to say that, you know, COVID, you know, created challenges that they had to overcome and led to things like, uh, the way they got blown out at Alabama or against Alabama in the national championship game. But Tuesday was the first time where it really felt like, yeah, Ryan Day is pissed. And Ryan Day isn't necessarily confident in the coaches on his staff, specifically Kerry Combs. Although he, I, I say that he didn't give him a vote of confidence. He also did not throw anybody under the bus. He he made sure that he did not point the finger of blame at anybody for that entire 30-minute press conference. It's just that he was given numerous opportunities to give Kerry Combs a vote of confidence, to defend Kerry Combs, and he didn't take those, which tells me that he is asking the same questions that we're all asking right now, and that's, can Kerry Combs get the job done? And, and you make the point with the rest of the defensive coach stuff too. Like, I think that's a good point too, because Kerry Combs, so much of it is being focused on Kerry Combs. But the linebackers haven't played well in, in two games. That falls on Al Washington. Al Washington's the guy who, who coaches that position. He develops those guys. A lot of that falls on him. I mean, the defensive line hasn't really had much production so far this year. That's Larry Johnson's position group. You know, Larry. Nobody ever wants to criticize Larry Johnson, and I'm not saying anything other than Larry Johnson is probably the greatest defensive line coach in college football history. That still doesn't make him immune to criticism, though. If if his unit underperforms, you know, Matt Barnes is a guy that got promoted into a bigger role on the defensive coaching staff this year, and so he now bears more responsibility. So it's a group effort. And obviously, Ryan Day is a big part of that, too. Ryan Day is the one that made the decision to hire Kerry Combs as defense coordinator. Ryan Day is the one who made the decision that when Greg Madison left the staff this offseason to make Kerry Combs the sole defensive coordinator, and instead of bringing in somebody else to help him coordinate the defense, to promote Parker Fleming to special teams coordinator. So Ryan Day is certainly responsible in this. Everybody on the defensive coaching staff is responsible in this. Now it's just a matter of can they get it fixed? And I, and I think you know you make the point too. We haven't seen Ohio State in this position before. This is a new position for Ryan Day. His only other two losses came in college football playoff games at the end of a season, and so he had a whole off season to respond to a loss. Now they have to respond in season to a loss, and this is a new situation for Ryan Day. So. 
it's going to be very fascinating to see how Ohio State responds to this. I don't know how much we're going to learn the next couple weeks because they're playing Tulsa and Akron, but just over time, can Ohio State get better? Can Ohio State, you you know, we saw it in 2014. I mean, Ohio State lost its second game of the year, a non-conference home game, and it goes on to win the national championship. So this season is far from over. It just now becomes a matter of addressing the issues that they have and getting better. Yeah, let me double back on one thing you said there because I don't want to sound like I'm being the the Kerry Combs defender and that Kerry Combs has done nothing wrong. I definitely do not want to sound like that because I, like all of you probably do, think that there are some big things going on with Kerry Combs and maybe his you know lack of comfortability, you know, calling calling plays and and, and making adjustments in game and, and things like that. But if we're being honest with ourselves here, I mean, Kerry Combs is the cornerback guy, right? He's the cornerbacks coach, and actually, the one thing that the defense the strong point of the defense has actually been the cornerback play. Actually, if you think about Denzel Burke emerging, um, Cameron Brown, I thought I thought both of those guys made a lot of good plays down the field um, in t- really tight coverage and broke up a lot of passes. I think that was one thing that I was kind of a disconnect between uh, myself and a lot of the fans and just interactions on Twitter during the game is that I, I felt like a lot of people were trying to just make it seem like the, the deficiencies on defense were just an extension of the same secondary problems that we saw from last year. And I was not seeing that exactly. I mean, a lot of the, the secondary guys had a lot of issues in, uh, in run coverage and, uh, you know, trying to stop the run. But I thought, you know, in terms of actual pass coverage from the cornerbacks, which is supposed to be Kerry Combs's, you know, specialty, you know, that that's actually looking not that bad for ISA right now. I mean, they're, they're only, you know, giving up like 220 yards per game uh, in the air. That's really not that bad, considering they've played very legitimate, um, you know, opposition, obviously. It's been, you know, defending the run, and that's a, that was a big point of Tuesday's press conference as well, was that, you know, maybe with the, the whole bullet thing, pulling a traditional linebacker out of the box, you know, bringing in a Ronnie Hickman, a defensive back, you know, putting him on the field, um, does that, you know, leave the run defense too vulnerable and kind of get this switch where now all of a sudden it's not the pass defense that, that is the big concern. It's the run defense. But yeah, those, those are all, uh, you know, topics we're trying to parse out here. And I think, you know, Ryan Davis doesn't have the, all the answers either. He's trying to figure these things out. He says structural changes are coming. We do not know exactly what that means, Dan, but it'll be very interesting to find out, you know, starting with Tulsa, I think Ohio State's going to have a couple of kind of softball games here, even if people want to, you know, act like they're not going to be because Ohio State is so terrible, according to some people right now. Um, but I think we're going it, to, it'll be a chance for Ohio State to, to play with some things the next couple weeks and, and for us to see what they're trying to do to address the issues before they get to some of their bigger uh, opponents here. Yeah, and Ryan Day said, he I think he used a phrase on Tuesday, different issues, same outcomes. So the defensive problems this year aren't the exact same problems that the defense had last year. It's just the the problem is they're not necessarily playing any better on defense. And so you make the point, like, I I think, I do think the corner specifically, I think their play has been better, even without seven banks for some reason that uh, you still haven't quite been able to get to the bottom of, of why seven banks isn't playing, but you know, the guys that have been out there, you know, I think they have done better. I think, you know, the past defense has not been as bad as it was last year. But I think part of that is because Ohio State has put more emphasis on defending the pass. Now they're giving something up against the run. And so they've got to figure out how can we marry this all together in order to be effective against both the pass and the run. Because right now, 
they're not they're still not great against the pass but they've been really bad against the run and so they they've got to just figure out collectively as a defense how they're going to get better and to continue our conversation about that we want to bring on our good friend of a show Kyle Jones because uh, he wrote a great film study for 11 Warriors on Monday about some of the issues that are playing the defense and you should definitely check that out if you haven't already but we always like bringing Kyle on here when it's time to talk about scheme and coaching issues and what might be uh, going wrong. He's been on the show a couple times before to talk about the issues with Ohio State's defense. And so now that those issues have become more glaring than ever, there's no better time than right now to have Kyle on the show. All right, Kyle, it's always great to have you on the show. And I think we just got to get right to it. Can this defense be saved? Is that a short-term or a long-term question? Because I think that's how we have to think about this. Well, let's let's start with the short-term. Let's start with the short-term. When you, when you look at, you know, where this defense is at right now, you know, what do you think can be done to salvage this defense? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I think, first off, we need to set our hopes and, and expectations accordingly. I, I don't think we're going to see a ton of schematic diversity because, and, and that's really due to the fact that we saw really two very different problems at play on Saturday. Um, you know, Joe Moorhead called a great game, had a great game plan. Um, Ohio State didn't really make it difficult for him for a couple of reasons, meaning they told him pretty much from the get-go for the last two years, this is what we're going to be. This is the coverage we're going to sit in. This is the personnel we're going to play. Uh, These are the alignments we're going to be in. We're not going to confuse you. We're not going to disguise it. We're going to come out and play a single high. And we're going to let essentially let you dictate where we are. And that's what you saw, you know, part of everyone's focused on the crack screen, you know, that, that, that sweep around the left edge that everyone got upset about. And we can talk about how could you have defended that? How could they have switched in terms, you know, what you call a crack replace where the, you know, the first play was Ronnie Hickman. How could he have kind of switched just like you switch and pick up basketball? But the reality was Ohio State's defense was so out of whack uh, because of the formations Joe Moorhead was using because he knew that Ohio State didn't have a counterpunch. They didn't have a way of – they were so afraid of getting out of what they do that they were going to be out leveraged. And that's exactly what happened. And he kept doing them over and over and over again. So – that was one issue from a schematic standpoint, you know, does this defense need to be too high? You know, we've seen a lot of experts in single high defense immediately emerge over the last 48 hours. I had no idea that central Ohio had so many single high uh, versus two high experts, but apparently thousands have emerged, um, which is fascinating. Love it. Love schematic talk. I'd love, love to speak with all of them, but you know, I think the bigger and the, the more serious problem, frankly, is the fact that this defense just looks lost whatever regardless of what the scheme is it's clearly not being taught properly it's not being installed with the same level of confidence perhaps or it's just it's just not getting through to the players the same way it was in maybe 2019 right when Jeff Halfley was here and I think if you really want to talk about what's been the biggest change for this defense it's certainly not the scheme itself it's who's been teaching it and that's the number one failure of a coaching staff is whatever you're trying to do, if you can't properly get your guys to execute, you're not doing your job. That's not on the kids. It's not who you recruited. You know, there I've been one that's, that's talked a little bit and we can get into 
you know, who are the four, you know, who's the five-star guy back in the safety, you know, at the safety position, um, you know, is why, why are they only recruiting defensive line? We can have those discussions, but at the end of the day, the guys that are there clearly don't look comfortable with what they're being asked to execute. And that's a fundamental problem. So to get to your question, short-term, that's what's going to for the next month. I don't think we're going to see a whole lot from a schematic diversity standpoint. Maybe we see a couple more coverages mixed in, maybe some cover two, maybe, maybe even some quarters um, doubtful, but I really think what you're going to start to see is let's just get these guys comfortable because they couldn't defend split zone, which that's what Ohio state, that's Ohio state's Like, you know, we're talking about spring practice. You're talking about training camp. That's all they're seeing from their own offense. So if you're not ready to defend what you saw for six weeks this off season, there's a problem. And so I, I think that's more than anything, what, what the coaching staff is going to focus on this in the near future here. Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, we heard in the offseason, we heard, you know, everybody's talking like, oh, the defense looks better. Like players seemed confident that things are going to be better. You met, And then you mentioned it, they're getting beat by their own concept. So what do you think it is that would make it where maybe things they were doing in August where it looked like the defense had made strides, suddenly when they go and do it in an actual game, it doesn't turn out that way? It's a, So much of it's a confidence thing. Um and so much of it is, is how the players are being, are, are being prepped. And what I mean by that is you can see split zone, you know, which again, for those that, that may not know, that's a simple zone run where the offensive line is going to block. Let's say they're all going to block to the left. The tight ends in an off position. So he's not on the line of scrimmage. He's going to start on the left side and he's going to come back across the formation and seal the backside end. There's going to create a cutback lane. You see it every sun, you know, every Saturday, you see it a lot of Sundays now. Um, Ohio State runs the heck out of it. That's a basic concept. And that's fine if you spent all summer prepping for it from one look. Oregon showed them a bunch of different looks. They motioned the tight end before they came across. They were in an unbalanced set. And again, that's on the coaches for not getting them ready. That's not having the proper plan. You know, I, I think over the years as I've done, you know, done this job, one of the things that I paid so much attention to, you know, beyond just schemes themselves is anytime you listen to coaches actually talk at clinics, they don't really talk about the schemes themselves, especially the success, the successful guys. They talk about how do you teach? How do you get through to your kids? How do you make sure they know what's going on? I don't think we can just look over the fact that a year of these kids' lives was basically taken away from in terms of a normal practice schedule. So you've got guys like Cody Simon, who's, uh, you know, in his what second, third year with the program. And, you know, basically lost the whole year. You've got guys like Taraja Mitchell, who was waiting to get playing time, Tommy Eichenberg, all these guys that are seeing the field for the first time that pretty much all of last year, they were just, you know, the, the extra guy on a zoom call. So, you know, now that's not to say that, you know, and, and what I mean by that, it's not their fault that this happened, but it is on the coaches to make sure, Hey, we've got to take care of those guys. We got to make sure that they're following along and not just, Pete Werner, Chuck Borland, Baron Browning, so on and so forth. A big reason why I wanted to have you on is because, you know, I feel like I, I can talk about personnel. I can talk about who's doing well, who's not, maybe, maybe they can make changes. You know, I can look at the scheme and I could say, okay, they're doing this, they're doing this, why am I be doing this, why am I doing that? Where I, where I don't necessarily know exactly how to diagnose where something's going wrong is the coaching aspect of it. Like when, when we talk about scheme versus coaching versus personnel. 
I've never been a coach, so I don't know exactly what it is that makes a coach successful, what exactly it is that allows Jeff Halfley to coach this scheme better than Kerry Combs. So when you look at it from your perspective, what is it that you see that you think is the disconnect here, that is not allowing Kerry Combs to have success running a scheme that other people have been successful with? Well, I think it's at a very high level. It's, it's he's running someone else's system. Imagine it's, it's akin to it's, I mean, so many coaches, they are teachers. And I don't mean that literally you talk to high school coaches, they're teachers and they're good at one job because they're good at the other. That's what you do as a high school coach. You know, you, I've talked to a bunch of them and they're just flummoxed by what's happening in Columbus right now, because this is what they deal with every year. You get new kids. Some of them are more talented than others. You got to replace them. And you got to figure out what works. And they're, you know, what Kerry Combs is dealing with right now, take away the public pressure, literally just the football aspect of it. There are thousands of high school football coaches dealing with this exact problem right now. But their, their way of figuring out and the ones who will figure it out are the guys who have something that they can rely on. They know what they're talking to. They know, you know, very much like what are the fundamentals that we believe in as a team? What can we lean on? Um, and again, I know this sounds very philosophical, but that that's where it all starts. And so that's where I think the disconnect may be when you talk about Kerry Combs. He was brought in to run someone else's defense, which is essentially a teacher being brought in to coach someone or teach someone else's class. I'm a science teacher and you're making me teach math. Math and science, not that different, maybe in, on certain levels. And I had to take math classes. So sure, I know a little bit about math, but I'm a science teacher. I'm learning on the fly just as much as you are, right? And yes, he's had time, but he's still not a math teacher in this analogy. You know, we didn't give him the chance, we didn't Ohio State to give him the chance to say, Kerry Combs, you're to DC. What do you want to run? What do you want to do? I don't think we have a clue what that is. I don't, I, I certainly don't. He hasn't been, he hasn't called a defense in over a decade until he got this job. And offenses look very different at the high school level in Cincinnati, Ohio in 2008 before he started moving up to the college rank. So it's really hard to say, uh, you know, what would his defense look like, but I can tell you that it's probably not Jeff Halfley's system. And I think that's probably where your biggest disconnect comes in. So Jones, uh, are you saying here that, um, you know, you think coach day should be getting a little more blame possibly for this entire situation than he seems to be, you know, on Twitter and, and from Ohio state fans and everything, because it seems like, you know, Kerry Combs is really getting the brunt of the blame, but, but are you saying because Ryan Day, you know, wants him to run a system that he doesn't have a lot of say in necessarily fundamentally that it, that some more blame should be shifted onto to Ryan Day? Yeah, I think it's very fair. I, I think Ryan Day made a, a questionable decision in hiring a guy to run a scheme that he wasn't necessarily well-versed in. Now, there is a part of me that, well, you know, this tinfoil hat time, that believes that when they hired Ryan or when they hired Kerry Combs in January of 2020, they said, you can run whatever the heck you want. You're the defensive coordinator. You're coming from a good NFL defense. that does a whole bunch of stuff really well. You learn from some good coaches and Mike Rabel and others who do a lot of really interesting stuff defensively. You can run what you want. COVID hits. They don't get a spring practice. They've got all these guys returning and they make a decision as a staff of like, well, shoot, the best thing we can do is just run back what we did last year because we can't install a new defense. We can't install a new playbook or a new system. We've got to run. We've just got to go with what we got to go with. And that's fine. Like that makes, that excuses 2020. 
it doesn't make sense for 2021. And I think that's where really the blame and the questions have to be asked, you know, when, as you know, for you guys who are there and, and asking the questions literally to Ryan Day, it's, I get 2020, let's, we can give you an incomplete, but this was the plan going into 2021, especially after what happened in the Alabama game. That's where the questions have to go to the top. And, and Ryan Day, yes, he deserves, he deserves some questions. And, 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 you know, this is certainly the biggest, you know, outside of COVID, of course, the most football specific, you know, biggest issue he's had to face as a head coach. And it'll be interesting to see how he handles it. I remember talking to you a few weeks ago, and I think we were both in agreement that we thought, you know, this defense was going to look more different this year. There were going to be more new concepts in the defense this year. And two weeks in, it doesn't seem like that's shown up. Like, I mean, how surprised are you that the defense just looks the same way it has and that it doesn't seem like they did anything to really make it better? You know, I've been trying to think about that all, all for the last week and a half, really, since we saw what we saw against Minnesota. The only thing I can go back to, and this is why I think it's tied to the, the teaching element, is it's almost as if Kerry Combs knows they haven't done a good job of teaching anything new. You know, they know that they're, they don't have much else to call. Um, you know, I, I keep using this pitching analogy of, okay, well, you're a fastball pitcher and, and, uh, you know, the best fastball pitchers are only, they can't throw a fastball every time. You have to throw an off-speed pitch. You have to throw a curveball. Well, what if you can't actually throw a curveball and you can't throw an off-speed pitch? You can't get it over the plate. You can't get it to the catcher. That's a problem, right? And, and so we're making this assumption that like, oh, you know, why don't they just call cover two? Well, I don't know if they can. I don't know if they can execute. And as bad as cover three and cover one have looked, with the safety just sitting there in the middle field, t- screaming at the quarterback, here I am, make you, you know, t- take advantage of this. It could be that Kerry Combs knows better than anybody that they just can't execute it. And, and that's still a failure, but it's a different failure than a schematic one, if it makes sense. <laughs> it's, a, it's an implementation execution failure. We talked about this a little bit on Slack the other day, but feels like there's a, so a lot of 2018 vibes here with, with Greg Schiano. And, you know, when we were at this point that year, you know, there's all this talk about oh, changing the scheme, making changes, but there's only so much of that you can do now that the season's yeah. actually started. Like that's the stuff that was supposed to be happening over the last eight months. It obviously didn't happen in a way that's working. So when you look at this, like, can you really make those changes in, in, in the middle of the year or in some respect, or are they just kind of doomed to ride this thing out? I, I think it's the latter, and that, that's where I go to execution and, and, and being comfortable. This is going to be a team for the rest of the year that plays single high safety. I mean, we'll see what happens with this, the injuries at safety, and, and you know, is Bryce, can they rely on Bryce and Sean? Do they move someone like Marcus Williamson, and, and they start playing more too high with him back there? He's got some experience. Ronnie Hickman's obviously played a little bit of, of free safety now as they rotated those two. You know, but I don't think from a large like defensive you know, overall scheme they can't change the stripes at this point. They, what they can do is they can try to get better at the stuff that they they've been trying to do. That's the only, that's the only way you're not going to install a new defense. And that's again, the, to the Greg Schiano comment, that was one of the issues that they had in 2018, which was trying to put in new stuff on the fly. And it, it obviously didn't work out so hot. The kids weren't confident. The kids weren't comfortable. The best thing you can do is you can say, fine, we're going to run cover one. And screw you, stop us. Because in 2019, that's what the attitude that defense had. They were comfortable, they were confident, and it didn't matter. Every offense in the every offense in the country knew, well, they're just gonna play cover one 
and they couldn't beat it. Now, granted, there were first rounders executing it and great guys like a Jordan Fuller, who I think will be one of those Buckeyes that we look back on kind of like Cam Hayward and go, wow, we didn't realize what we had. Man, he was so much better than we realized. But I think, you you know, there's going to be that you have to try to get to that piece and then you deal with it in the winter and you say, look, is is this the best situation for for the program? Maybe, maybe not. Then you decide to make a decision. But this is a team still trying to win a Big Ten title. They're still able to get to the CFP. They're still going to try to win a national title. There's no doubt about it. That That's still the goal. That hasn't changed. Um, and actually, the schedule sets up as such for the next month that they can they can beat up on some teams and, and feel pretty good by the time they have to play a decent team again. So, so Ryan Day, you know, you say that they can't make a lot of schematic changes, right? They won't be able to actually yeah. install a whole new system. But Ryan Day says today that structural changes are coming on defense. Do you think that's just more of a, you know, who might be calling the plays on defense or who might be, you know, the the hierarchy of power, uh, if you will, on the defense? That's that's not actually referring to what they can actually install during the season. I think so. I think it has to do with how they're game planning. What are they focusing on? How are they thinking about attacking the opponent? Um, you know, the one thing that has, that has really just kind of broken my brain through this whole process is the fact that the way Ohio State's defense has operated is the antithesis of the way Ryan Day has run the Ohio State conference. You know, he thinks about it and he's been open about it with you guys, with coaches, with everybody. We look at, we look at personnel. We say, who do we want to be? Who, what is the team around us? Who are the, who is the talent at hand? How can we maximize it? And you're seeing it this fall. You're, they're saying Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, get them the ball. Right. And they're building the offense accordingly. Then what you're saying is, okay, if the team, the, the defense knows we're trying to get those guys, the ball, how do we mask it? How do we, you know, deceive and create uh, an, an illusion of complexity, but we make it easy for the players. So how do we add motion? How do we use formation? How do we use personnel? I mean, think about how many times, how many from different ways have we seen them run mesh over the last four years? It's a simple play and teams still get beat by it because they disguise it well enough, right? And that speaks to the way that they approach offense. None of that's happening defensively. They're coming out saying, hey guys, safety's in the middle of the field. We're here, right here. You know where we're going to be. We're not moving. This is our zone. You see it pre-snap. And when they do try things like blitzing, when they blitz, man, it just, it's the most obvious thing in the world that they're sending the corner. Everyone in the stadium knows. So of course it's going to get taken advantage of. So those are the elements that I got to imagine are killing Ryan day. And so as he's thinking about what are we going to try to do to stop it? It doesn't mean play quarters all of a sudden or come out with a dime three deep three down line and defense. It means okay, where is the blitz coming from? How are we attacking? What are we going to do to make this look a little bit different? What are we going to make them do to think, wait, where is that coming from? How do I hesitate? What, wait, what's going on here? As much as humanly possible and, and be a little bit more in his likeness and in, in, in the sense of his offense. So that, that's where I got to feel like the structural change is coming where, you know, it's a little bit of the game plan gets, it goes through him maybe more before, you know, a little bit more than it has in the past. I think the thing that's really striking to me about the defensive struggle so far is just how bad they've been against the run. So there was so much talk about the pass defense this offseason, and, and the run defense has really been what's been awful so far for this defense. And, you know, I think there's a couple there's a couple things that I look at. Like, you know, for one, I think, like, okay, did, did we underestimate the loss of Greg Madison, the guy who was mostly coordinating the front over the last couple of years? Uh, we had all this talk about the bullet, but was maybe that a bad thing for a run defense to take 
uh, an extra player out of a front and add another defensive back on the field. What do you look at as kind of maybe the factors for why the run defense has taken such a massive step back? Well, I don't think you can look at it as one versus the other. And I think you think about the the Alabama game as a perfect example where I was thinking in that game and said, screw it, Najee Harris not getting his yards. We're going to lose. We're going to lose. And that's what happened. You know, remember the quote Najee Harris had where he goes, what are you talking about? Like, I got I got my butt kicked today or something along those lines. Right. And that was because they sold out to stop the run. Um, they being Ohio State's defense but they just didn't have the talent on the back end to keep up with Alabama's receivers. I think after a year of hearing that or an entire off season, this was a defense that they all knew we get, we can't get beat like that again. And they read it. They know what we are saying about them. We know what they say. We say their problem is. And then you get a team like Oregon who says, okay, whatever you do, we're going to make you wrong. You know? So if you, you sell out, stop the run, we're going to throw the ball. You throw you know, you, you go cover the pass. We're going to run the ball. It's, it's very simple. You know, the offense has the advantage there, especially for a guy like him. And I, I think you look at the play, you know, CJ Verdell's long touchdown run, the 77 yarder to start the third quarter. Why did that run happen? Because Tommy Eichenberg is sprinting out of the middle of the field to go cover the tight end and coverage. He's so worried about that tight end catching a pass in the flat that he leaves the middle of the field wide open. And CJ Verdell just has a, a you you know has all the room in the world to run through. So I don't think it's necessarily a oh the run D's bad but the, the pass D's good or the pass D's good the run D's bad or I think they're looking at it with the same thing of, of hearing all this all off season and then also knowing oh man we are down seven banks we're down Josh Proctor we are Cam Brown's not healthy we're playing true freshmen behind us guys who shouldn't maybe be on the field yet. And if I'm a linebacker, I'm going crap. I can't let, I can't just sell out, stop the run because that's all that's behind me. Now, now you're playing flat footed, you're playing slow and you're getting beat. Any players that you saw when reviewing the tape that you felt like weren't as out of position, maybe as some of those other guys, I know we've seen a lot of those clips, you know, or guys like Taraja Mitchell or, or Eichenberg or, or Shaw being out of position, you know, coming up from the secondary, anybody you thought, you know, upon reviewing the film, it was actually surprised you uh, with their play. Uh, Denzel Burke fan, number one here. Just like, let me start the fan club today. That kid is a stud and a godsend for this program right now. I mean, the fact that he has stepped in, I mean, I don't know, what was he, the hundred and what ranked prospect? And, you know, he was in the middle of the class. I don't even know. Um, yeah. And he starts from day one. And he looks good. He looks comfortable. He's playing with confidence. He's playing with swagger. He knows he belongs out there. That is going to help so much for this defense for the rest of the year. So I think he he played well. Cam Brown, I think, played really well. Uh, clearly on a pitch count. Clearly not able to play a full game quite yet. So I think that was a, a you know a question. I think the defensive line uh, largely is getting beat up, you know, for reasons that I don't totally think are fair. The ball's coming out so quick those guys don't have a chance you know it's not like anthony brown step you know uh, on saturday sat back in the pocket and just you know beat ohio state with downfield passing you know seven step drops every pass was two steps three steps ball out catch catch the snap ball out i don't care who who you got there you could have chase young both bosa brothers jesus and they're not getting to the quarterback like it's just not happening when the ball comes out that quick you know, I think Haskell Garrett playing nose tackle, that experiment needs to end. And I think it, start, it largely did. 
in, in the second half. You saw him play more three-tech, leaning on Antoine Jackson. You know, if there's another young guy that can step up and, and take snaps there, it'll be hugely important. Just that ability to eat up blocks um, and be willing to just create a pile when you don't get penetration run right away. That's I don't think Haskell came back to school this year to create piles. Um, I think he came back to play three tech and get in the backfield and make plays. So put him there. So I, I think there were some positives, especially when you look at the kind of the traditional drop back passing game, but you know, the linebackers to your point were really the, the, the area that make you go, Ooh boy, that, that was, that was not great that we got to see improvement there. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned those linebackers, you know, it kind of makes me laugh, like thinking about the the narrative from the fan base over the last few years, but like, Oh, all these great linebackers are being kept off the field by Pete Werner and, and tough Borland. And like, to me, I go, I watch these games and I go, man, they really miss Pete Werner. Like having a guy who was, Oh my gosh, is he was. And like, I think you mentioned it the other day. I think they missed tough Borland. He was not a fan favorite, but you look at what's happening in the run game right now. I think they really miss a guy like that who is, you know, very assignment sound uh, against the run there playing in the box. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry the tough Borland couldn't run with Devontae Smith down the scene. Tough break, you know, no pun intended. Like that, the, that guy was so necessary. Like if he had been there on Saturday, it would have made a difference just playing sound. So what if he gets beat a couple times in the flat and gives up a five-yard gain? That C.J. Verdell run does not happen. The 99-yard drive does not get out of the 10-yard line. Like that, They just need guys that can play in a phone booth like that and plug up the middle, force the ball to the edges. Um, you know, I think that's been the, the, the strangest thing to see is that teams are attacking Ohio State right up the middle, and that's new. That's not something we really ever see from Ohio State. And I think Tommy Togi has a guy they miss a lot too, to your point about the, the nose tackle. Like, I think he was a guy that, you know, he, he made such a big difference in the middle there last year and they don't have that same kind of presence right now. Exactly. Exactly. I, I don't, I don't know where it comes from, but uh, you know, I think we're going to maybe see over the next few weeks, more depth and, and different things at the nose tackle position. Hopefully they can solidify and build some confidence, whether it is Cody Simon or Eichenberg or somebody else playing in the middle. Um, you know, I, I think they need to give, Ronnie Hickman, uh, you know, the chance to build some confidence, you know, he made some plays, uh, but he was also out of position a lot and, and, you know, got caught flat footed, got caught cheating and looking in the backfield when he shouldn't have been. So I, I think he can be a player. He's a guy that we might look back at in two years from now and go, wow, that kid's a stud, but he's clearly not there yet. We have a ton of questions from our listeners. I feel like we've addressed most of them. One that we haven't uh, Buckeye 3M asked us, uh, with Kerry Combs being on the sideline and not in the booth, is that a big problem? What's your perspective on that, Kyle? That's so individual to who the entire staff is that you have, right? You know, you have to be able to make that decision as a staff of who needs to be on the sideline. You know, I think a guy like Larry Johnson, you know, because he's so fundamentally and technically involved with his guys when it comes to using their hands and, and teaching them right there, he's somebody who's on the sideline. Um, Al, Al Washington is very similar. So right now it looks like you got Matt Barnes and a bunch of analysts and other guys up in the booth. The question is not, should a DC be up there or whatever it's do the teams on the ground, the coaches on the ground and the coaches in the box, trust each other. Are they communicating in a way that the information is getting back and forth with each other? And that's where you think about structural changes that Ryan Day is talking about. That may be part of it too. 
thinking about who is giving, who is relaying what information to whom, when is it getting there? Is that in enough time for Combs to make the right choice in terms of a play call, when to send a blitz, when not to? Uh, I, I don't know if there's one good, there's not one good answer because both approaches clearly work. They may try it just to try it, but it's really just about building trust between that staff. We also got some questions about the offense as well. And one of them from Codizzi asked about the offensive play calling, basically saying that he thinks it lacks imagination. When you watch the offensive play calling, what's your perspective on that? I love it. I don't, I don't think this changes the thing. I, I thought Oregon's defense is good. Um, you know, they were down some guys, but Noah Sewell's a stud. You want to you want to talk about good linebacker play? Go watch Noah Sewell in that game. That dude was everywhere. Uh, you know, he was reading the game very well. He was filling gaps, shedding blocks. They sent some really nice time blitzes. You know, as good of a game plan as Moorhead had, I thought their defense had a great game plan as well. Um, they were ready for some of what Ohio State brought, and it still didn't matter. It's Ohio they had 600 yards of offense. What are, what are we doing here? What are we talking about? Yeah, it, it is kind of funny to see like the amount of people who are criticizing CJ Stroud after he threw for the second most passing yards in, in Ohio state history. I really don't think he's the problem here. No, I I'm pretty sure CJ Stroud is going to be just, just fine. There, there was a question asked by bucks 15 about, he thought Stroud seemed hesitant to keep on RPOs. Were these design handoffs that looked like RPOs, or were they actually RPOs that Stroud read wrong? Did you know? Did you notice anything with that? I. It was hard to tell. You know, it, it's always hard to know what the rules are for those types of option option plays. What are they looking for? What is what is the give read? What is the keep read? Um, you know, I, I think let's if we can dispel one thing: an RPO is not a zone read. Um, those are different things. Uh, so keeping on an RPO means he's going to throw the ball. So let's let's make sure we focus on that. I think they've done a good job of incorporating some some of those into the into the the offense much more than so much more so than in years past. All these screen passes to Wilson and Owabe I think are really really helpful. But I, I think they're going to eventually tell him you know very much so. Justin Fields didn't keep the ball on on any you know option keepers until the last few games of the season. I think they're confident in CJ Stroud and they know they can move the ball without him needing to use his feet. So there's no reason to subject him to these hits. You know, it's one of those things where it, look, when JT Barrett kept the ball all the time, what did we hear? What did we hear? It was JT runs the ball too much. I wish we could, I wish he did other things with it. All of a sudden you get quarterbacks that don't do that all of a sudden. Why doesn't he keep the ball and run more? You know, there's until Ohio state wins a hundred to nothing and get the turnover on every possession defensively, there's always going to be somebody who's upset. I am not worried for one second about C.J. Stroud's decision-making thus far. It is funny how things cycle, isn't it? Like, it feels like people complain about something, and then as soon as they change it, people complain about them doing the thing that they were complaining about before. So it's like you said, I mean, it, you just it, unless they're just completely dominant in every facet of a game, people are always going to find something to complain about. And you know what? When that comes, you know who they don't want to talk to? The scheme guy. They never want to talk to the scheme guy when they win by 100. No, no, no. That it's recruiting, uniforms. Let's talk about all fun stuff. Let's talk about dot, dot in the eye. So, I yeah, I think it. your uh, film study got about over 40,000 reads uh, in less than 24 hours, which tells you how concerned people are about the defense right now. Yep. Yep. It's fair. I, I understand why. I get it. Griffin, you got any more questions for Kyle? Last thing I got for you would just be one thing we didn't talk about uh, on the offense. 
Is anything that concern you about the, the actual run game for Ohio State? I know, obviously, them being behind and, and having to throw the ball a lot um, in the second half there probably took uh, some steam away from, you know, the potential to put up numbers in the run game. But anything you saw with, with the offensive line or the way they were, weren't really able to hit some of those runs uh, concern you moving forward? There were a couple plays, uh, you know, re-watching where I think Whipler got got blown back a little bit. Uh, Oregon did a nice little, nice little move that I thought was smart, which is com- more common than I think people realize where they essentially had their nose tackle be- acting as a missile to take out the center, <laughs> which, you know, it's just literally just hit the center as hard as you can and blow him backwards. And the reason for that is if you blow the center backwards, the guard's not getting up to the guard can't get up to the middle linebacker. And we saw that on a couple of the short yardage plays where, you wondered why Ohio State couldn't run the ball and they couldn't get that push. Well, it's because, you know, it was just a really nice play and and Whipler being as an inexperienced player wasn't expecting it, I don't think. I don't think he was ready to, to necessarily deal with that or, or see that coming. Uh, I, I think the four-tackle offensive line is performing well above my own expectations. You guys know I was a little worried about seeing DeWand out there. He's been fantastic. Paris has been fantastic. Thayer and, and – NPF looks like the best left tackle in the country. Um, sorry, Evan Neal. I know you know people are going to get upset about with me for that. Uh, just thus far, NPF's been outstanding. So we didn't get the Kayvon Thibodeau matchup we wanted there, but you know he was excellent. I, I do. I will say the one thing to take away from the blocking schemes. We're going to be on this topic. The fourth down that people were upset Chris Olave didn't didn't get the interference call. The fourth down, you know, passing the end zone. Stroud gets blitzed, has to scramble, throws up a wild pass. They don't convert. I'm not confident. I obviously don't know what the play call was, but I'm I'm pretty sure that was Travion Henderson missing a block. Um, and I don't mean to light the kid up or, or make him look back because he's been fantastic. He's you know he's very clearly the the, the bell cow back already, um, which was a lot faster than I anticipated him to win that job and, and get those important snaps. Uh, it looked like he just, that was his responsibility to pick up the blitzer there uh, and didn't even see it. And that guy had a beeline straight for CJ Stroud, which blew up the entire play. And and look, that happens with true freshman running back in pass protection in their second game. You're going to have that. It was unfortunate timing to say the least, um, but I would bet you that that's something that they're working this week to clean up. Well, Kyle, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I'm sure that we'll have you on again. Uh, hopefully, next time it won't be about uh, Ohio State's defense giving up 500 points at 500 yards, 500 points. I mean, it could happen at this point, but it could happen. You never know. 500 yards after a loss. Hopefully, next time there'll be some more uh, positive things to talk about. But either way, I know we'll have you back because you're always a great guest. All right, thanks, guys. It's always good to chat with you. Thanks again to Kyle for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk to him here on Real Pod Wednesdays. We talked so much about the defense. We did talk a little bit about the offense there at the end. And I do think it's worth you know redoubling on the point where I, I do feel like there's been a good amount of fans that are blaming Saturday's loss on C.J. Stroud. And I think that's misguided. And it was pretty clear when Ryan Day was asked about it on Tuesday that he thinks that's misguided. And now I say that not to say that I think C.J. Stroud has been perfect, because he hasn't been. He has thrown an interception in each of the first two games. 
He has had some overthrows. He's been inconsistent at times. He's not Justin Fields right now. I mean, Justin Fields was probably, I've said it a billion times on the show, Justin Fields is probably the best quarterback Ohio State has ever had. The expectations for C.J. Stroud never should have been for him to come in and be just as good as Justin Fields right away because he's a redshirt freshman who had never thrown a pass in a collegiate game before this season. So they were expected to be some growing pains. At the same time, he threw for 484 yards on Saturday. That's the second most passing yards in for an individual player in Ohio State history. Now, the question of whether Ohio State should have been throwing the ball that much, that's a valid question. And, you know, we, we had the question uh, that was asked about, you know, the run game and, and whether, you know, Ryan Day should have committed to that more. And I think even Ryan Day has admitted in his press conferences since Saturday's game that he probably should have committed to the run game a little bit more, but they probably bailed on that too early because because they were behind. And so certainly I think finding better offensive balance is going to be something that Ryan Day and the rest of the offensive staff are going to want to do going forward. But, you know, when I hear Ohio State fans saying, you know, get CJ out of there, bench CJ, why aren't, why aren't we playing, you know, Quinn Ewers or, or Kyle McCord? Yeah, they got a lot of talent at the position, but I haven't seen anything from CJ in two games that would give me reason to think he shouldn't be the quarterback right now. Oh, I 100% agree. And just think about what CJ Stroud has has had to open the season against in comparison to Justin Fields. I mean, okay, Cincinnati was legit, not as legit as they are now, I will say probably, uh, or even the 2020 team in terms of Cincinnati. But Justin Fields got to warm up against Florida Atlantic. You know what I mean? C.J. Stroud, a night game versus uh, at Minnesota to open his career, to throw his first pass. And, I mean, he after the game, he admitted he was a little bit shook after that game. That was a big moment to step in. And I said it on the podcast last week. I've been saying it, you know, uh, all offseason pretty much. Like, man, like, after Minnesota, then you got to go play Oregon. Like, he did not get a very easy introduction to the Ohio State experience here in comparison to a Justin Fields or, or even most seasons. I mean, that was a rough way to start when you've never thrown a pass before in terms of the opposition he's going up against. And I mean, the man simply threw for almost 500 yards, you know, nearly set the, the all-time single game record for Ohio State in passing yards. Now, those stats, kind of like last week, like we talked about then, the stats didn't tell the entire story because you know, there were some moments where C.J. Stroud, the interception, that final interception he had, you, you look at that and you're like, man, I can't believe, like, it was so above Chris Olave's head on that throw. And he was on the run, but it's not like he had somebody draped all over him. Like, that was a play you look at. There, there was another play towards the end of the game where, you know, it seemed like he could have commit to the run on a certain play, but ended up getting cracked. Um, I think he took another sack in there uh, at some point as well. Um, he you took talk- one sack. One sack. Yeah. He's taken one sack in two weeks. Yeah, yeah. And, and you talk about the run game as well. Um, I remember somebody in the uh, in the press box when Ohio State had the ball back, you know, they had multiple t- multiple possessions there to potentially tie the game or, you know, take a lead with a two-point conversion or whatever in the last seven minutes of the game. And I remember Ohio State got the ball back with like seven minutes to go, and somebody in the press box said, oh, they're not going to be running the ball now. And I'm thinking in my head, like, they're only down one touchdown. There's seven minutes to go. You could run the ball here. Like, you can absolutely run the ball here, and they really didn't, you know, try to get that going uh, towards the end. They put a lot of pressure on C.J. Stroud, frankly, and he made a lot of big plays. He made a lot of big throws. 
you know, Jackson Smith and Jigba having a huge breakout performance, that kept them in the game late. I mean, those, you know, big touchdown catches in, in the third and fourth quarter, um, a, lot, a lot of big plays were made to keep them in the game. But it's just kind of funny because the defense couldn't get stops, you know, for, for most of the game. But then when Ohio State really needed them to, they did get the stops, put it back in the hands of the offense, which was rolling for, you know, a lot of that game. But then suddenly, you know, their momentum just kind of stalled out and they suddenly couldn't, you know, convert um, some, some crucial fourth downs at the end of the game. And also, not to be that guy, but there were a couple of plays, you know, calls that could have gone either way that could have had a big impact on that game. The, the targeting call, of course, uh, I had, I personally, uh, in the moment, I had no idea if they were going to call that a targeting or not on Noah Sewell, just because, you know, I think as Steve Hellwagon, uh, you know, tweeted at the time, nobody knows what targeting is. So I had no idea if they were going to call it a targeting or not. That could have obviously flipped the game. Um, you know, there was a holding call on Thayer Munford that could have you know, went either way. There was a, a pass interference that didn't go called. And I hate to be the guy that talks about, you know, calls and things like that. But I think that goes to show how close the game actually was um, in the end. The fact that, you know, one big call could have switched, the, you know, could have flipped the game and, and we could have had a tie game, you know, in the last, you know, minute of the game or so. Well, it's wild to think about, like, if a couple different plays had happened, like how different our conversations would be about Ohio State football this week. Like, yeah, we'd still be talking about the problems of the defense. But we wouldn't be talking about it at a DEFCON 9 level or whatever. You know, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking about it like, is this team broken? You know, is this team's uh, playoff, you know, hopes already over? And, and that's something that I want to address now, too, you know, here as we get toward the end of our show is, you know, I, you know I've, got a lot of, I've got a lot of Ohio State fans asking me, like, you know, can Ohio State still make the playoff? And, the simple answer is yes, absolutely they can still make the playoffs. They've only lost one game. They they still completely control their own destiny in the Big Ten. I think Ohio State can absolutely make the playoff. Now, granted, there's a lot of different variables that factor into that. If you want to work up the worst-case scenario of, of what could happen to keep a 12-1 Big Ten champion Ohio State team out of a playoff, you can. But first of all, if you're worrying about those hypotheticals right now, my advice would be worry about that come November. Because first of all, Ohio State's got to get to that point. If Ohio State loses another game, then we won't be having this conversation. And it's certainly valid to be concerned that Ohio State could lose another game in a regular season because they've clearly got a lot of issues to work through. But when I hear people that are, you know, giving up on the season already saying, you know, this is a rebuilding year, to me it's like relax, take a deep breath. Let's see what happens here because there's still a long way to go and we've seen this before. Again, I I will make clear when I make the comparison to 2014, I'm not predicting that this team will win a national championship right now. I'm not doing that. I picked Alabama before the season and Everything I've seen so far has only reiterated my belief that Alabama is the team to beat in college football still. But I don't think anything is off the table for this team right now. Like we talked about with Kyle, I I also don't know that it's realistic to think that this defense is going to become a top 10 defense by the end of the year. I think most likely they're going to have some problems on defense all year long. And so the offense is going to really have to be at that elite level to, to, to outscore teams, you know, much like they had to do last year. But to me, when, I, when people are giving up, I mean, 
Oregon could absolutely be the best team that Ohio State plays in the regular season. I mean, we we knew that going into last week. They're now the number four team in the country. We'll see what happens with Oregon. But, you know, I, I look at the regular season schedule. I still, right now, I'm going to pick Ohio State right now to go 12-1 and one and win a Big Ten championship for the fifth year in a row. That's not to say there aren't teams that can't beat Ohio State. I mean, Penn State is off to a good start. They certainly could. Michigan looks good right now. We've seen Michigan look good in September and not in November before, but they do look good right now, so I'm not going to rule out that threat. You look at a team like Iowa, they certainly look like a team, uh, the way they're playing defensive football right now, that, that they could be a real threat in the Big Ten championship game. But I still think everything's in front of this Ohio State team, and I don't think you should give up on any goal for Ohio State right now because there's so much that can still happen between now and January and it really just becomes a matter of how much can this Ohio State team improve between now and January. And it's so funny because I've seen a lot of people taking that quote from Haskell Garrett. It was a, gr- a great quote at the end of the game when Haskell Garrett said they did it in 14 you know why not us in 2021 basically. And a lot of people were kind of rolling their eyes at that. The, the the angry Ohio State mob basically on Twitter was kind of rolling their eyes at that and saying, no, no, that's completely different because X, Y, and Z. Because because that team had this, that, and the third, and this team does not have that. And I'm just thinking like, but in the moment, when they lost the game in 2014, it's not like they, everyone thought that they were going to go on and win the right. national championship. Like, right. I was, I, I was at that game. I, I actually That was actually the last Ohio State game that I went to that I was not covering that game. And I remember leaving that stadium and absolutely I did not think that that team had a chance to win a national championship. I had not even close to it. And so that's really the point. It, it, people hear that and then they try to compare this team to what that team was in January. Well, you got to compare it to what that team was in September. And what that team was in September was a team that was way lower in the rankings than this team is right now, and a team that nobody thought was anything close to a national championship team. A team that, by the way, also had a quarterback who had just played his second game at that point. And I think C.J. Stroud's a lot more talented, quite frankly, than J.T. Barrett, at least as a passer. And so I think to take any goals off the table for this team right now, I think it's an overreaction. If, if Ohio State lined up against Alabama right now, I would absolutely pick Alabama to win the game. But I also know that there's a long way to go in this college football season. And so to, to act like anything is off the table right now because of one loss to a team that has also now made itself a playoff contender, to me, it, it's just too early to jump to those conclusions. And you have to ask yourself as an Ohio State fan, is this loss really worse than that Virginia Tech loss? Is this loss really worse than, you know, Purdue or Iowa in those no. years? And that's why I just, I roll my eyes at some of the reaction to to the loss um, because it's those losses were worse, right? I mean, I, I wasn't covering those games as an actual media member, so I don't, I wouldn't have the same, uh, you know, I didn't have to dissect Losing those games Losing to Purdue by 29 points it was absolutely worse. I mean, to me, in terms of not, I'm not in terms of necessarily how the games played out, but in terms of comparable, in terms of what the games were, in terms of the opponent, in terms of the stage, to me, 
the most comparable recent loss to this was Oklahoma in 2017. To me, that's very comparable because you're talking about another team that's, you know, one of the top teams in college football. A game that you went into it where I I think Ohio State was favored in that game, but it was a game that, you know, most people expected to be a competitive game. And Ohio State out got, got outplayed and it lost. And now that season, Ohio State went on to lose to Iowa later in the year. And that ultimately kept them out of the playoff. So don't get me wrong. When I say that everything's still on the table for Ohio State, Ohio State has no margin of error now. Ohio State has to win out the rest of the regular season. Ohio State has to win the Big Ten Championship if it's going to make the college football playoff. But we just saw Ohio State go undefeated each of the last two years. Granted, last year was a much shorter season, but we saw Ohio State get to the national championship game last year with a defense that was not very good. So... I still think Ohio State is one of the best teams in the country. I don't think they're the best team in the country by any stretch. Right now, they're probably not one of the four best teams in the country. But I still think there's time for them to get there. Yeah, just to play devil's advocate, I guess, the thing that, and you alluded to it earlier, if you're, if you're going to press the panic button a little bit, even though it's a very early stage in the season, it could be because, you know, last year it was a down Penn State. Ohio State didn't play Michigan, but it was a down Michigan team. It was a down Michigan State team. This year, right now, all three of those teams are looking pretty good. And even though, you know, Indiana, you know, kind of fell off the, the wagon with their, you know, first game against uh, Iowa, you know, I think a lot of people thought that that was going to be the big, big Ten East team that Ohio State might struggle with this year. This year, it kind of looks like, you know, the, the old, uh, you know, blue blood teams in the Big Ten East, uh, you know, might, you know, be resurging a little bit here. And so I think that's why, it, you know, we, we talk about this, me and Dan have talked about this. It kind of does make the season a little bit interesting that Ohio State's lost this early early game because now, you know, we're looking at some of these Big Ten matchups and now these are kind of bigger games that feel, you know, have a little more weight on them because it's not a foregone conclusion necessarily that Ohio State's going to roll through them based on what we've seen uh, and some of the deficiencies we've seen uh, in, in this loss this past weekend. Absolutely. Any of those teams could beat Ohio State. My point is, though, at least from my perspective, I still don't think those teams are better than Ohio State. Maybe they, maybe they are. Maybe they are. There's a long way to go in the season. We'll see. But it's not like – I mean, I, 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 I think we had a poll on 11 Warriors on Monday about predicting the record for the regular season. And it went all the way from like 11-1 and one to 6-6. Six and six. And there were people who picked 6-6. Six and six. I mean, if this team goes 6-6 six and six, – the offense is going to have to completely fall apart for this team to go six and six. Even if the defense continues to be bad, for this team to go six and six with with all the talent they have on offense, I mean, I mean, this I mean, this team is nowhere near the, the situation it was in 2011, the last time it didn't have a winning season. And so, could, could this team go ten and two, nine and three? Absolutely, that's absolutely possible. The fact that they've already lost the game and the fact that they clearly have some deficiencies. It's absolutely possible that this team is going to prove to not be a college football playoff team. It's absolutely possible that this team is not going to roll through the Big Ten the way it has for the past couple of years. I'm just not taking anything off the table for this team because I still think this is a team that can beat anybody. It's just that they are a more beatable team than they might have been a couple of years ago. And I would just love to know what was going on at Eleven Warriors during that uh, that 2011 season. Um, obviously, I was eleven and, and watched you know all those games and everything, but I wasn't you know online like that at the time. 
I would love to know, you know, the, the atmosphere on the beat at that time uh, would be an interesting time capsule for me to go back and, and see. Yeah, I was an Ohio State freshman at that time. I, I was not covering the team at that time. That was actually the one and only year that I sat in the student section a, a, as a fan. Uh, and so that was uh, not the most memorable year uh, to experience an Ohio State football season from that perspective. But I still remember it being fun because I was a uh, college freshman experiencing major college football for the first time. Yeah, and that, that, that year also, you know, Braxton Miller being kind of like a, you know, a, I'll a always remember that to. game, the Wisconsin game, where he threw the, the uh, Hail Mary to, to Devin Smith. I'll, I'll always say, uh, even though that was a bad season for Ohio State, that's always one of the games that I, I always feel like I'm going to remember from Ohio State because I was there in the stadium. Uh, it was one of the first games that I had attended live at Ohio Stadium. So that's one of those games that even though it was a bad season, I'm, I'm always going to remember. 100%. There, there was just enough that year, just enough to, to keep the fan base you know, uh, excited, I think, that year. But all right, Dan, uh, we've got some other questions here um, from some of the, uh, obviously, the, the forum posters here. One of them is, any word on seven banks? Seems to be a lot of mystery going on, which can't be a good sign. Also, any word on why Ryan Watts didn't play on Saturday? Dan, do you want to take a crack at those? Yeah, I mean, we alluded to the seven banks situation earlier, but that, that's one I thought was worth discussing because something doesn't feel right about that, does it? Yeah, I know you were kind of initially the one who brought that up, so you asked about it, and then he didn't really give you an answer, so then I asked about it to follow up. And just something, something feels weird about that, the fact that he has not been listed on the availability report. He's apparently healthy enough to play, Yet has not played a snap in these first two games. I don't, I don't have any inf- inside information at the moment on why he hasn't been playing. It really might just be that it's a, a nagging injury, and they've decided to hold him out to be precautionary. It just seems weird that a guy who's available to play, who was supposed to be your top cornerback this year, isn't playing at all in a game where your defense is really struggling. And the game's on the line for four quarters. Granted, like you said before, I don't think the cornerbacks have been the problem. Uh, you know, particularly Denzel Burt, Cam Brown. I thought they did well in coverage the other day. So it's not necessarily that, oh, like not having seven banks out there is the reason why things went wrong. I don't think that's the case at all. But it's, it still feels weird that a guy who apparently isn't injured enough to be on the availability report a guy who we saw warming up and seemed to be available to play didn't play at all in such a big game. It's super bizarre. And Ryan Day gave us completely contradicting answers when we asked about that situation today. Because when I asked, is, it, is something going on non-injury related? He said no, which would make you think, okay, so he is injured. Then you, of course, you know, I should have been ready with the follow-up right there. But you, of course, asked a few minutes later, okay, okay, so he's injured. So why is he not on the availability report? Oh, he's actually healthy and he could play this week. So, but that makes me think, is he, did he just gotten healthy? Or was he healthy enough to play this entire time? There's still questions to ask. And, you know, it's it's a very bizarre situation. I mean, it's all, the, the situation with Harry Miller is also kind of bizarre. We haven't really gotten any actual information about that situation either, unless you've heard other, you know, whispers that I haven't heard. And so that's another big question too. Like, what's going on with him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily want to speculate on that. I I do think the key difference there is Harry Miller has been listed as unavailable. So, from my perspective, I respect the fact that 
Ohio State doesn't necessarily want to get into details about why particular players are unavailable. That, that, that's been a policy of Ryan Day. I respect that. But if you don't list the player as unavailable, if, if, if that's going to be your policy, that we're not going to talk about injuries, we're just going to issue an availability report, that's a fair policy. But then if a guy who's a projected starter on your team isn't listed on the availability report and he doesn't play, then I think that becomes a different situation where it becomes more you know scrutiny of, of why isn't he playing and maybe it maybe it's just the fact that he didn't he didn't practice that much in the offseason and maybe they feel the other guys are more ready to play right now and it could be that simple but when, when, when we're not getting any answers about it then you know obviously people are going to speculate yeah, and it hasn't seemed like he's been in like a doghouse on the sideline or anything like that either. I mean, I, there's pictures of him. He's like standing up right on the sideline with Kerry Combs and everything. And, you know, uh, I think it was Lathan Ransom said that um, Seven Banks was being, you know, a leader on the sideline and really helping the young guys out. And, and he like traveled that. with the team to Minnesota. So Right, right. It, it's, it's all very bizarre. Any word on why Ryan, Ryan Watts didn't play on Saturday? I would personally probably just say that they, I don't think they loved his film from the first game, maybe. Um, he didn't grade out as a champion, obviously, uh, on the, in the first game. Um, it was kind of strange to see Legend Cavazos get, you know, those reps. Uh, obviously, Cam Brown came back and took Ryan Watts' uh, starting job from the first week. Um, but, yeah, the fact that Ryan Watts didn't play at all versus Legend Cavazos playing, what are your thoughts on that, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically what you said. I mean, when we, when Ryan Day was asked about it on Tuesday, he said that, you know, he basically said that they're, they looked at the film and they're still working for different combinations. And so... I mean, I I was surprised that he didn't play at all because I thought he was solid in the first game, as Young Buck twenty nineteen uh, said as well in his comment. But Ryan Watts did play on special teams, so he was available, and so that that was presumably a matter of them just deciding that they felt more comfortable with Denzel Burke and Cam Brown and Legend Cavazos out there. Yeah. Another question here, back on the offensive side of the ball, uh, from Silver Sniper. We've got, you'll probably have a good take on this one. Do the Bucks use these upcoming games to take a look at McCord as quarterback? Well, I think they're certainly going to in the second half. I think if, unless these games become more competitive than they should be, then I think we're absolutely going to see the backup quarterbacks get some snaps here. And, you know, the one thing that I, I, I do wonder you know, uh, two things. Ryan Day has made it clear that C.J. Stroud is the guy that he wants out there in a competitive game with the game on the line. So it, right now, I don't think there's any... It's not going to be a matter of they're going to put Kyle McCord out there starting against Tulsa and he could potentially, you know, go take over the job if if, if he plays really well on Saturday. I, I, don't, I don't think right now C.J. Stroud's job is at any jeopardy, obviously. There might be more questions about it if one of these young quarterbacks goes out and plays great in the next few games. But I think right now, Ryan Day is firmly committed to C.J. Stroud as his starting quarterback. The one thing I do wonder about is because C.J. Stroud revealed to us after the game on Saturday that he's been dealing with, it seems like there's a shoulder injury. He didn't quite confirm that, but he also didn't deny it when he was asked about it. 
being a, a shoulder injury that he's dealing with. Uh, he, he went as far in his postgame presser to, you know, basically say, thank God that I was able to play this week, making it sound as if there was some doubt about whether he would even be able to play last week because, you know, of, uh, you know, whatever's ailing him. And so that does make me wonder, would Ryan Day potentially look to pull C.J. Stroud a little bit earlier in these next couple games just to keep him healthy? That that I don't know the answer to. I think it's a possibility. That said, I I certainly think as long as C.J. Stroud can play, he's going to start those games and he's going to be the quarterback in the game until Ohio State is in full control of a game. And then we'll, we'll find out who the number two quarterback is. And I think the number two quarterback is going to be Kyle McCord. I, that would be my prediction that uh, is, if Ohio State's in a situation to play multiple quarterbacks on Saturday, that Kyle McCord will be the second quarterback in the game. But we'll see. Yeah, it's kind of a catch-22 with Stroud because you would like it to get him as many reps as possible, you know, being such a young quarterback – and just to gain some confidence against some, you know, potentially, you know, lower level opponents, just so you can get a bit a better feel, because he, like we just talked about earlier, the first two games were not, you know, necessarily huge for building confidence, uh, given that he admitted to being rattled after the first game, and then after the second game, it's the Ohio State's first regular season loss in, in years. You know, he's probably beating himself up about that, um, the fact that he's the, you know, not measuring up to Justin Fields, things of that nature or whatever. Um, but if he is a little bit banged up, then you don't want to have him in there. So it is kind of a little bit of a a catch-22 there, but it all kind of depends on what the score of that game is going to be like, how the defense bounces back, and, and, and things of that nature. Do we see Quinn Ewers make an appearance in one of the next couple games? That's going to be very interesting. I I really don't know the answer to that question. Like Going into the year, I felt more confident that we would. Right now, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm really not sure. Um if I'm going to bet right now, like, will we see Quinero's play on Saturday? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say we don't see him play this week. I think we see him play at some point this year. But I, I'm going to – my guess is going to be we don't we don't see him this week. How about you? Oh, I definitely don't think we're going to see him this week. I mean, because there's no way they're going to play him over a Jack Miller even or something like that, I think. Because, I mean, he's coming to the program so much later. I just don't think they're going to get down, you know, to a fourth quarterback in the game. I mean, you know, Tulsa – they're not that bad, you know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe, maybe if we're talking Akron, I don't know. But I, I don't think Quinn Ewers is going gonna, is gonna to make an appearance. He's, it's still so early on for him, you know. And um, just physically, too, and, and we, we don't know how, how many reps he's really even getting, how comfortable he, he would even feel in that type of setting. So, yeah, I definitely do not think we're going to see Quinn Ewers um, in the next couple of by the, by the time the season's over, in, by the time January rolls around, it could be a different story. Not in terms of him jumping C.J. Stroud or anything like that, but just in terms of being ready to actually come into a game. But I think right now, they, they wouldn't. I don't think they would do that right now. Ohio State plays Tulsa on Saturday at 3.30. What's your score prediction? I actually have not thought about this before. I probably should have. I'll go um, with mine. Mine's 59-21. I think Ohio State is going to cover this week. I know there's people who are... I know the line started at 31, and it was bet down very quickly, presumably because of the concerns about the defense. But... I'm going to say Ohio State cruises to victory in this one. What did you say your score was again? 50, uh, 59 to 21. 59 to 20. Let's go 47 24. All right, so you are going no cover. Correct, correct. 
Yeah, that, that's what I'm rolling because I, I just don't think Ohio State's going to get. Nah, see, I got I got to put a little more thought into this before I come back with an official an official prediction because I, I do remember looking at that that Tulsa offense and having some serious questions there. So I'll come back with a, with a, an official prediction. You know, as as the week uh, progresses here a little bit. Yeah, I think I think Tulsa will score a few times, but you know, I think about these games. It's it's always hard to predict to score in these games because so much of it depends on how long does Ohio State keep its starters in the game. And then how will the backups do? And, you know, I, I do think from a long-term point of view, Ohio State is going to want to get a lot of players in this game, a lot of young guys in this game. Because I think a lot of what we're talking about right now, especially for defense, a lot of that does go back to the fact that Ohio State really didn't have any of those opportunities to get those young guys reps next year, last year. And so I do think Ohio State's going to want to do that in this game. I think as long as Ohio State can take a comfortable lead into the second half, I think we will see a lot of backups in there in, in the second half. But I also think we're probably going to see C.J. Stroud at least play a full half, those starters at least play a full half. And I think they're going to come out pissed off and really wanting to dominate in that first half because I don't think anybody in that program is happy about what happened last weekend. Yeah, I'll just throw this at you. My, my kind of last thing here, is there anything that Ohio State, the Ohio State defense can do against a team like Tulsa that would kind of satisfy the fan base and get people to, to cool off on, uh, on Kerry Combs right now? Yeah, that's a hard one. I, I don't know how much you can do against a Tulsa or Akron because I think if it goes poorly, I think – absolutely it can make things worse. And I don't think it, it's really going to take that much to make things worse because even if you just give up a, two or three touchdowns, people are going to go, Tulsa, like you're letting Tulsa score on you. So I, I think it's far more likely, to be honest, that people are going to come out of this game feeling worse about the defense than they are better just because it's Tulsa. I think, I think they're going to have to basically shut Tulsa out or really dominate them for people to really come out of this game feeling like, Hey, we saw great progress from the defense. I think I, I think the thing that would be most interesting is, do we see anything that's distinctly different than what we've seen so far this year? As we talked about with Kyle Jones, I think to expect to see a completely different scheme this weekend is probably not something you should expect to see. But is there anything that we'll see this weekend that'll show us a different direction for this defense? I think that's going to be the really fascinating thing to watch. Yeah, I think people are going to be uh, crying bloody murder if they allow Tulsa to score like 30 points. That's definitely <laughs> the kind I mean, even if it approaches. And they shouldn't. No, I mean, if they, if they allow Tulsa to score 30 points, that would absolutely be a problem. I agree. I agree. Well, thanks so much for listening in to this week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. We'll be back next week to talk about whatever we did learn from the Tulsa game and uh, the continued progress of a defense that we know you still all have a lot of questions about. So thanks again for listening in and we'll talk to you soon.